0: in a verse by verse study of the book of Romans to the 14th chapter. My Bible's already open there. Please join me. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, our text today. There are 16 chapters in this great book. and That means uh, we're turning down the home stretch of this sermon series. Uh, we begin not only a new chapter today, but a new subsection of thought in the mind of the Apostle Paul. And just to remind us, he spent the first 11 chapters here in the book of Romans giving us a full and deep doctrinal teaching concerning the theme of justification by faith. But beginning in chapter 12, Paul shifted to practical application. That is, he wants us to live out this doctrinal truth. And for example, in chapter 12, verses one and two, he begins to talk about our relationships and how they're impacted by this truth. And uh, the first way it's impacted is how we think about ourselves and God. Uh, We are no longer our own. We are the Lord's. We come to Him every day presenting ourselves as living sacrifices to Him, holy and acceptable. Verses three through 13, chapter 12, talk about Christian's duties to one another, that we're part of the same family and the same uh, body. We're different body parts. Uh, Verses 14 through 21, talk about how we're to relate to lost people, even when they persecute us. We're not to take our own vengeance. We're to let the Lord be the judge. Um, Chapter 13, seven famous verses, verses 1 through 7, about how Christians are to relate to their government. And how could we be more practical than verses 8 through 10 when he talks about the Christian's relationship to his money. And then last week, um, we looked about the relationship to our own flesh. And so this morning, as we come to chapter 14, uh, this entire section goes all the way through chapter 15, verse 13. So Lord willing, we're going to take four Sundays to talk about this new subject. And the new subject has to do with what Paul calls the difference between the strong and the weak. Now, Lord willing, as I said, we'll take four Sundays to unpack this theme. Let's read our text this morning, Romans 14, 1 through 12. Paul writes, now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt, the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. He who eats does it for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. May the Lord add his blessing the reading and hearing of his word. Well, because the Apostle Paul spends 26 verses here in the book of Romans on the concept of relationships of the strong and the weak in the church, we need to study it. And before we study it, we need to define the term. So what do we mean? What is Paul saying when he talks about a strong Christian and a weak Christian? Well, the strong are those who rightly discern the difference between the commandments of God and the opinions of men. We need more strong Christians in the church, don't we? People who are are more influenced by the clear commandments of God than the opinions of men, and they know the difference. A weak Christian is one whose conscience is informed and bound by past religious experience and perhaps may have not come to fully embrace their freedom in Christ yet. He's not saying they're in sin, he's just uh, saying they haven't fully formed their understanding of liberty in Jesus. Now you must understand that Rome was a melting pot of ideas and certainly of religions. So the church at Rome was likely composed and comprised of believers whose pre-conversion experiences were a reflection of the city you likely had some converted Jews in the ranks. Uh, Many of those converted Jews, as we find from the rest of the New Testament, had a hard time letting go of their ceremonial and dietary restrictions that they learned growing up. And on the other hand, you had people who were coming out of all sorts of cults and sects and paganism, where they had all kind of deviant sexual behavior associated with their religious practices. And so their consciences oftentimes were were bound because they didn't want anything they did in the church to reflect, to be similar, in other words, to anything they did before they were converted. Now, I need to make something very clear to you before we go deeper into this subject of strong and weak Christians in the church. The issue at hand are not... excuse me, are rather non-essential matters of conscience and personal convictions. He's not talking about clear commandments. He's not saying that if if someone has a a, a conscience problem with committing murder or robbing the bank, (laughs) those are clear commandments, right? All of us should avoid those kinds of sins. He's talking about things that are non-essential and are not spelled out explicitly in the Bible as good, bad, or indifferent. We would call them morally neutral things. Now Paul uses two real time illustrations of matters of personal convictions that could potentially cause problem in the church and perhaps we're already causing problem in the church at Rome. For example, in verse two, look at it. He says, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. So they had differences in their diets in the church. Verse 5, the second example, one person regards one day above another. So there were differences in the way that they ordered time and they kept their religious calendar. So that's what we mean. Those are just two examples of the kind of things that the Bible doesn't say are right or wrong. They're not clear commandments. There's no prohibitions against them and there's no commandments to do them. And so what do we do with those things which are cultural and matters of personal preference or, or conscience? Well, Paul spends 26 verses talking about those things, so they must be very important. In fact, he spends more time talking about potential conflict in the church than he does with all of the other conflict, talking about persecution, government, money, all of that. He spends more verses on these things than anything else. So for the purposes of our study, I've broken down today's text into three sections, each with its own heading. So verses 1 through 4, we'll study this morning under the heading of Accept One Another, Verses five through nine, maintain a clear conscience. And verses 10 through 12, lead the judgment to God. So let's begin. First, he says, accept one another. Verses one through four, and by the way, you might wanna underline, circle, highlight those words in some way. He says, accept one another. That is the theme of this entire section of scripture all the way through chapter 15, verse 13. Accept into full fellowship, it w- what it means. Embrace them as a brother or sister in full standing. Don't regard a person who has a different um, set of backgrounds and circumstances as lower than you or different from you. You to view yourselves as peers, as fellow members of the household of faith. That is, the strong is to view the weak that way, and the weak is to view the strong that way. He says, one who is weak in faith one who has yet does not have a full understanding of their freedom in Christ. He's saying your job is not to correct their personal convictions. Now, uh, you are to embrace that weaker brother because you, not because you want to fix them. He says in verse one, not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. You don't bring someone close so that you can straighten them out. In other words, you truly accept them just as they are and as, listen to this, as spiritual and holy as you are, made holy by the blood of Jesus. And so let's go back to that first example that he uses that could potentially cause problems in this area. It's in verse two. He says, one eats all things, one eats only vegetables. Were you aware that there's a Bible verse about vegetarianism? Well, there he is. Here it is, underlined in your Bible. Um, so, so there's a couple of possibilities of what's going on here. Uh, Maybe he's talking about converted Jewish people. Remember Daniel in the Old Testament had a conviction about eating the king's meat in Nebuchadnezzar's table, and so he asked to eat only vegetables. Now there's no prohibition, as far as we can find in the book of Leviticus, for Jewish people eating meat. They enjoyed a lot of different kinds of meat, but they had to be prepared in a certain way. What do we call that? Kosher, right? Go to the grocery store today, you can find food that's prepared uh, in a kosher fashion. Well, perhaps they feared that this meat that was being served was not prepared in a kosher fashion. So to play it safe, they only ate vegetables as Daniel did. That's a real possibility. And others, maybe these people are coming out of some of these pagan cults where they would sacrifice animals along with the sexual immorality that was going on in their temples. And it was sold in the public market and they didn't want to eat meat that had been uh, sacrifice to idols and maybe it was Gentile. Maybe it's a mixture. We just don't know. He, does, he just gives the example that some people eat all meat and things and others eat only vegetables. How are we to think about our relationship to one another in light of that? Well, we know that in the New Testament, these dietary restrictions from the Old Testament have been removed. In Acts chapter 10, for example, Uh, God gave Peter this vision of the unclean animals let down from the four corners from heaven, and he said, Arise, kill, and eat. And Peter said, Not so, Lord. I've never eaten any of the unclean animals, not about to now. And what did God say? What I have declared clean, let no man declare unclean. Well, it's not just the dietary restrictions that the Lord is talking about there. He's talking about people. God knows that Peter had some racial prejudice and animosity, and he was saying that I have chosen some Gentiles to be part of my kingdom because we know that very soon thereafter there's a knock on the door. Peter was summoned to the house of a Gentile man who was, he was to tell the gospel to who became a, a wonderful Christian. We know at the Council of Jerusalem also here in the book of Acts, uh, there were some people who were trying to force these rites and rituals upon Gentile believers. That is, you have to become Jewish before you can become Christian. And they studied this and they prayed about it and they came out to the clear clear conclusion that no Gentiles were saved by grace just like we are. And and so um, we don't live under those dietary restrictions. Now, if you choose to do that for your health, not a problem. We'd probably all be better if we ate more vegetables. My wife's going to say amen in the second service here on the front row. But it's not because we're compelled to biblically or there's some commandment in Scripture. Paul says there's no commandment in the New Testament for that. So how are we to behave when we have a potluck and one person's offended by your venison or by your steak or your roast beef, and another person's not? Well, verse 3, look at it, is the key to understanding this. He says, "...the one who eats," that is the meat, I take it is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him." That is, we don't have the right to look down our spiritual noses at people who don't share the the same compulsions uh, and peccadilloes of conscience about these uh, secondary and tertiary matters. And the primary reason, he says, we are to accept a brother or sister fully, to embrace them without viewing them as a second-class citizen that has different personal convictions, is that God has accepted them And just as the Lord said to Peter what I've declared clean, you have no right to declare unclean. We don't have the right to do that to another brother or sister. Who are we to disdain one that Jesus has said he's died for? Well, we don't. And that's his point. Well, that leads us to our second point. Verses 5-9 through tell us that we are in this process of learning to get along with one another to maintain a clear conscience. And in verse five, he gives us that second example. He says, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Now this was going on in several of the churches that Paul was ministering to. Some people were keeping a calendar based on Sabbath days and religious festivals. And some had made it a legalistic thing. And for example, in Galatians 4, 10 and 11, Paul wrote to that church and he said, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I've labored for you in vain. That is, you're emphasizing what God has not emphasized. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or festivals or new moons or Sabbath days. These things are a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul seems to always be trying to help them see that these external matters and these secondary and tertiary matters are not the main thing. The main thing is faith in Christ. But he's a lot harsher, you might have noticed, to the church at Galatians Galatians, than he is to the church at Rome. Why is that? It's a very simple reason. Because those churches had begun to tie these religious festivals and ceremonies and dietary restrictions to salvation. Whereas in the Church at Rome, it was just a unity issue. No one was saying this is how you're saved or lost. And so Paul was much more gentle with them. But Paul came down hard against these special days because uh, it, it was a different set of circumstances in Galatia. Now, verse 5, again, is a key to understanding this chapter. He says, one person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person, mark this, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind Now, what Paul is saying there, as he talks about the mind, is the conscience, because our conscience, which is that mechanism God gives every person to tell us what is right and what is wrong, is informed by how we think, that is, in the mind. And the principle is, Christian, don't ever violate your conscience. That is, if you are asked to do something or say something or go somewhere or eat something or drink something, and your conscience tells you not to do it, even though everyone around you is saying it's okay, don't do it. And on the other hand, if your conscience is clear, don't be influenced by someone whose conscience is not. That is, God gives everyone the conscience. Not only that, he gives every Christian the indwelling presence of the Spirit. So he says, let everyone do as he's convinced in his own mind. Martin Luther famously said that it is neither safe nor wise to violate one's conscience, right? And we should never violate our conscience. Now, um, the principle don't violate your conscience. He who observes a day observes it to the Lord. He is convinced in his own conscience that this is the best way for he and his family to live to honor God. So, so my sort of principle is this: Someone comes to me and say, "Oh hey, do you know what so-and-so's doing?" Do you know where they're going? Do you know what they're drinking? I say, has the Lord given you a personal conviction against that? Yes. I say, well, you ought not do those things. You ought not do those things, right? But we are not the other person. They have the Lord. They have a conscience. It's not our place. What did he say in verse 1? You bring them close. You accept them as a weaker brother, but not for the purpose of passing judgment upon them. If the Bible is silent on it, If these things are morally neutral, if they're not either prohibited or commandment, leave it to the Lord. Let Him convince them. It's not our job to do that. Same thing for a person who observes one day as more holy than another. That's between that person and God. If they think that this is the way they can best honor and serve the Lord, don't bother them about it. Which leads to our third and final heading, leave the judgment to God. Isn't that exactly what he said about how we relate to non-believers who are persecuting us? Don't take your own revenge. Leave the judgment to God. And I said the reason is God has an attribute that we don't that makes him more qualified to judge. And that is he is omniscient. He knows all the details that we don't. So let's just let him be the judge. Verse 10 says, But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Leave the judgment to God. That is, we are not to be our brother's judge on matters of conscience. Now, that's not to say if a brother or sister is in open, obvious sin that we leave him alone. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 18, the opposite. If your brother sins against you, go to him. If he repents, you've won a brother. If he still won't repent, take a witness If they won't repent, take it to the church. See, there's this process of church discipline on matters that are clear in the Scripture, either commanded or prohibited. Again, these are not what he's talking about. He's talking about those morally neutral matters, these matters of culture and matters of preference. He says, let God judge. Now, he says something here that's very interesting. He says, we all, he's talking to Christians we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. The book of Hebrews says it's appointed to every man to die and then to be judged. You say, Pastor, I thought we didn't have to worry about judgment. I thought uh, Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It does say that. But this judgment is not for heaven and hell, I told you last week. The judgment seat of God is where Christians stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and he puts their life through the test, and that which was motivated and done for His glory survives and is purified and is judged like so much gold, silver, and special, precious stones. And that which was not done for the right motives, that which was not pleasing to the Lord, is burned up as so much wheat, hay, and stubble. This word is bima, the bima judgment of God. This is taken from the Roman Empire. And when an emperor would send a general out to conquer new territory, when the battle was over, they would process and parade back into the city, all the way up to where the emperor would be seated on his Bema throne. And that's when he would give awards. He would give titles. He would grant land to these conquering heroes. It was not to say whether they were victorious or not. That was clear. They were. It was to reward them for their faithful service. This is what he's saying. Brothers, don't you know that all of us one day are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So so his point is this. Every man will give an account to himself. Verse 12, so then each one of us, remember the first pronoun he uses is all. All of us are gonna stand before the judgment seat, but in verse 12, it becomes singular. So then each one of us, will give an account to himself to God. In other words, we're not going to be judged before Christ in groups. We're going to be judged one-on-one, aren't we? For what each of us has done. He said, if that's the case in glory, why would we now be judging one another on these non-essential matters of culture and conscience? He says, "Don't, don't do it. Now contrast that with the great white throne of judgment where the books are going to be open for lost people And everything that they've ever said, done, or thought is going to be judged for punishment. And then the book, singular, the Lamb's book of life is going to be opened. And whoever's name was not written in it is cast in the lake of fire, which was prepared for Satan and the demons. That's not the judgment he's talking about here. He's talking about here, the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment of rewards. Now, what's he saying in verse 12 when he says, each one of us will give an account for himself. I think he's saying what your mother told you when you were worried about your brother getting more of the candy than you did. You worry about you. You stay in your lane. We teachers used to say, keep your eyes on your own work, right? I, immediately this week when I was studying this, I thought of an incident in the Gospel of John, the very last chapter, verse 21. You remember where Peter had forsaken Christ and Jesus went out to him and said, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And each time he said, Lord, you know I love you. He said, then feed my sheep. But we forget what he said right after that. Right after that, he said, Peter, when you were young, you went wherever you wanted to go. But when you were old, they're going to bind your hands and they're going to take you where you don't want to go. And John added the note. Jesus said that signifying what sort of death Peter would die. Peter said, Peter, you're going to die a martyr's death if you truly love me. And you would think Peter in this grand moment would have something eloquent to say about his devotion to Christ. What happened in reality, and why I think it's so obvious, this is exactly how it happened. This is the way people really act. He didn't say some eloquent speech declaring his devotion and love for Jesus. His lips started to tremble, and he looked back at his friend John and said, What about him? I preached a sermon here with that title, what about him on that text? Sometimes we're called to suffer for the Lord and we look around us and people who we view as less spiritual than us seem to be having a fine old time. Their bodies are in good health and their finances, he's got a promotion, driving a new car and we say, why not me? Why why doesn't he have to suffer? You know what Jesus said to Peter? He says if i will that he lives forever what is that to you and of course the gossip got around in the church that jesus said john was immortal and john was writing to correct this so jesus didn't say that he says what is that to you he was making a point to peter about his own life well really we can apply that to us that's exactly what paul is saying we're not the judge of any man when it comes to these non-essential matters of culture and conscience and why would I spend so much time talking about this? Well, I've been a member of this church, I said last week, I think 23 years. And I have seen the Lord do a lot of good things here in that 23-year period. I've seen so many of you grow in spiritual maturity. And, and the truth is, I guess when I was a younger pastor, my biggest fear and concern in the church were violations of clear commandments. If someone would sin against another brother that would cause internal conflict in the church. But the more experience I've had at pastoring, I've I, I found that today my biggest concerns about unity in our church are not overt matters or sin, though please know we are all capable of that, right? I'm not dismissing that as a possibility. But my biggest concerns these days in our church over disunity are potential matters of personal conviction and culture like he's talking about here. Why why do I say this? Well, look around you how we've changed in 23 years. Did you know that we have services in four different languages every Sunday here? People that are coming from all over the world and and two others are translated from English into those languages. So six languages every Sunday are hearing this message and there's a potential for disunity, right? Right? Some misunderstanding about some non-essential cultural matter. But it's not just language and, and ethnic potential conflict. There's social economic differences that I'm aware of more and more as the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And, and where I see that the most is uh, when people die. And I'll see, here, here's a poor widow woman who gives her body to science because she can't afford a funeral. And here's a corporate CEO that dies and has a magnificent funeral. They're part of the same church. The Lord values them equally, doesn't he? But if we're not careful, we'll let these non-essential cultural issues divide us. Some have and some don't. We're, We're to accept one another, but not for the purpose of judging one another. I see generational differences. We have people that will be in this room today, some born in the 1920s and some born in the 2020s. A hundred year age difference in people coming to the same church who've had totally different life experiences. There's a potential for, for disunity there. There's um, religious differences. Some of you grew up in fundamentalist churches where you don't do this, that, or the other. Some of you grew up in high churches where everything was stand up and sit down all the time, right? And some of you grew up with no church background. And, and, and look, we have seen churches divided on musical differences. Didn't you enjoy the choir and orchestra today? As I looked into the orchestra, this thought crossed my mind. I saw a man playing his instrument for the glory of God who used to play the fiddle at the Grand Old Opry. Really. And then right behind him was a guy playing the guitar that used to be in a heavy metal hair band in the 80's. But they were playing together totally different cultural backgrounds for the glory of God. Amen? That's what he's talking about here. Don't let these cultural differences separate you. Now, why do you care, Pastor? I'll tell you why. Uh, turn over to Hebrews. Hebrews uh, chapter 13. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verses uh, 17. And by the way, as you're turning there, I'll remind you that tomorrow and Tuesday, we're having our annual pastor's retreat. All the pastors and I will gather up at Denton at a little retreat center. And if it's like every one of the other 18 years since we've been doing this, I'm going to read to them this text that I'm about to read to you. Hebrews 13, verse 17. The writer of Hebrews says to the church, obey your leaders, which means pastors, and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would not be unprofitable for you. So he says, pastors, one day, just as every person is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of their life, pastors have a higher level of accountability. That's what James the brother of Jesus says, Let many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing you will have a higher level of accountability. And if you want to know why I care so much about the unity of this church, here it is. I am going to give an account for all 2,500 souls in this church. And if you've ever wondered why I have aged like a two-term U.S. president lately, (laughs) that's why. And so he says, behave so that your pastors can serve you with joy and not with grief. So, look not to make this about the pastors, one of the reasons that we care so much is that we're going to give an account, not only of our own life and behavior, but because of, of yours as well. And look, I will say, in the 23 years I've been here, it's been much, much, much more joy than grief. And I'm thankful for that. And, and, and may it always be the case. We have to always be on the lookout. And my prayer every morning is, Sanders. Pray to God that you don't mess it up. And then pray that the other guy doesn't mess it up. So let's get real specific. We're out of time. Um, The culture is different today than it was 2,000 years ago in Rome. I don't know of any Sunday school classes that are fighting over vegetarianism. They may be. But there are some things in our culture that I would put in the category of secondary or even morally neutral that could cause problems. One is what do we wear to church? The Bible gives us some basic instructions about modesty, but doesn't tell us how to apply those. We shouldn't make those matters of law. Um, what version of the Bible that we bring? Churches have been split on this. There's nothing in the, the scripture about that. We don't make it a commandment where God doesn't make one. Uh, what hymns to sing and which ones to leave out? Brother Matt's gonna give me an amen in the next service on that one. Um, how we ought to celebrate holidays. So do you have Santa Claus or even celebrate Halloween at all? These are things that are real. These are things that people have genuine, heartfelt convictions of conscience about. So what's the principle? It's not our job to correct someone who has a c- conviction we don't. It's not our job to accept a conviction that we don't have. We're to accept one another on these secondary issues of conscience and culture Why? Because the Lord has accepted them as a child of God and because he is the judge. And if I could just put an exclamation point, let God judge, he's really good at it, amen? All right, let's pray and be dismissed. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word and uh, Lord, thank you that uh, the Bible is so relevant and practical all the way down to what we eat and drink and how we celebrate holidays. And yet, Lord, we're not careful. We'll make these non-essential matters of culture and conscience litmus test for fellowship. And that is prohibited here clearly. We are to accept one another, but not for the purpose of judging one another. And where the Bible is clear on thou shalt not and thou shalt, Lord, may make us abundantly clear. Help us not, Father, to accept sin. That's clearly sin. Help us love one another enough to practice discipline in those areas. But Lord, where you give us freedom, help us to enjoy that freedom. And Lord, where it's profitable to not practice that freedom for the sake of another brother, give us the grace to do that. As Matt prayed earlier, help us to consider one another more important than ourselves. Help us not always to be demanding our rights and privileges and exercising our freedom in an arrogant Lord, I pray for unity. I thank you for the sweet fellowship and unity this church has enjoyed for decades. And yet, Lord, we're always one day away from this unity. Guard us, Father. Never let Satan have a foothold here. Father, may we value one another. May we recognize that every person who's a true Christian is accepted by God and that one day we'll give an account of our own lives and not of another person's. Father, we pray that you'd sear these truths to our conscience today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.